Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. Glad you're all here with me this morning. It was uh, wonderful to sing with you, to worship with you, and uh, I, I love uh, Sunday morning with my church. So uh, it's been, uh, it's going to be a great morning. And if you're wondering why I limped up the stage, I'm okay. I just hurt my knee uh, doing outdoor things uh, on the farm. So uh, kind of a, 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 an injury that comes with the, the territory a little bit. So um, we've been going through this series called um, A Tale of Two Kingdoms. And A Tale of Two Kingdoms is a, is a close look uh, 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 for, of King Saul and, and of King David. And, and as you, you may know or you may have heard, David is a man after God's own heart and Saul was rejected by God. And so when you have those two kings and you look at them at a distance, it's very interesting to see what's the difference. Why is one a man after God's own heart and why is one rejected by God? Uh, and so last week we talked a little bit about Saul and we talked about the way he kind of acts under pressure and the way he views um, uh, his, his father, God, and, and the way he views the kingdom. And, and this morning we get to take a look at, uh, closer look at King David. So um, that's, that's going to be a great thing. Um, last week, if you remember, the Philistines were bearing down on Saul and he was kind of in this panic mode and, and he, he knew he had to do a couple of things and, and he kind of took matters into his own hands. A perfect opportunity to trust God uh, in the difficult moment, and he panicked. He panicked, and he chose to try to control it himself. Um, and so then this week, we get to look at David is in a very difficult situation, and to see how he responds uh, to that. So, um, so the question is, is how are you in an emergency situation? I'll bet you have some sto- a story or two about how you respond in an emergency situation tough situations, whether it's an emergency or it's difficult or it's stressful or, or high anxiety, whether it's a job that isn't going well or a relationship that is falling apart or a diagnosis that you're not sure what it's going to come back as, how are you? How do you respond? Um, you could probably guess how I respond. I'm a somewhat of an emotional person, so I tend to struggle with following my emotions versus strong following my, my logic in my brain. You know, the U.S. military uh, spends a lot of money every year training its personnel to respond to training. And so what they do is they train and they train and they train and they train, and then they put their people in really stressful situations to see how they respond. And the more training and the, and the more excellent the training that you get, the more likely you are to respond instinctively to your training and, instead of the stimuli around you. And they, and they spend a lot of time doing this, special forces, how um, a crazy and uh, wild a situation they can put their people in and see how they respond. Well, David is in a bit of a, an emergency situation this morning, and we're going to watch how he responds. But I can remember an emergency situation that I was in. This was way back, um, uh, I think Zach was just a child, uh, so about seven, eight years ago. And uh, it was our anniversary. And a little bit of backstory, we were living in Colorado Springs at the time in a, in a happy little development in Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs is about a million people. And it was a really dry summer. And if you know anything about Colorado, especially the plains, it's a high desert, which means there's no moisture in the air, it's high elevation, and there's a lot of burnable material around. There's no water, right? Very little water. And so uh, a brush fire started in the mountains and uh, they think maybe lightning started the fire, and the fire began to grow. And firefighters responded, and they responded, and they responded, and they called other crews in, and the fire keeps getting bigger and bigger. And over the next couple of days, the fire is uncontrollable. Um, it goes to, I think they were at like 90, uh, 10% controlled 
uh, and, and they started televising. The fire chief of the city, uh, it gets on, the, on the, the news channels, and every night and every morning they do an update on where the fire is and where it's going and how fast it's moving. Um, and I can remember about halfway through the week, uh, the fire had begun burning homes. And so they were blanketing, doing reverse 911 calls and, and removing people from their homes. And police were involved and the military police were involved. And they were, they were getting people out of their houses as these houses are going up in flames. It's a horrific time for the city and, and such a scary time for so many people. And I can remember that the, the police chief and the news cameras, they had set up a, a place to um, do news interviews. Uh, it was a little elementary school kind of in the heart of the city. Um, and, and they would do these uh, news responses and, and people would interview the chief and stuff like that. And, and I can remember one particular evening, he's talking to the cameras and he's telling people that the fire has spread and it's so large, get this, the fire is moving at 60 miles an hour. You can imagine the, the terror involved in people that are in the path of this thing. And as he's describing the seriousness of the situation and all that they're doing and they've brought AC-130s in and they've brought jets in and they have helicopters and they're doing everything they can to contain this fire. A fireman walks up and whispers in his ear and he immediately says, we have to move from this location. The fire is going to be here in a few minutes. And he puts down the microphone and they get in cars and they drive away. And this is the seriousness of the situation. So my wife and I are, I can remember it's our anniversary and we had planned a dinner and we had my in-laws babysitting our children. And, and, and we had seen the smoke, right? And we're driving through our neighborhood out and we're seeing the smoke. We're going, man, that, that looks kind of close, you know? That only looks like a few miles away. What's the worst that could happen? So we keep going. Um, and uh, we sit down at our dinner table uh, or at, a, at the restaurant we were going to be at and we get a call from my father-in-law and he says, you've just been reverse 911, I think, past that, yeah. And, um, and they want us to evacuate. So you got to get back here. you got to get your stuff. we got to get out of the house. So my wife and I panic, and we jump in the car, and we have to drive like 20 miles. Of course, I picked the restaurant that's across town. So we drive 20 miles to get back there, and, and our neighborhood is blocked off. And there's police cruisers everywhere, and we pull up, and the, the, the officer's waving me down, and I said, I have to get in there. And he was like, no, the, the neighborhood's closed. You can't get back in. And I'm like, listen, my in-laws and my children are there. I have to get in. And he goes, okay, I'm not allowed to let you back in. But if you go back there, there's a, there's a dirt road you can get back into the neighborhood. And I'm like, okay, great. So I, against his uh, judgment, uh, he let me in. And so we get, we pull up to the house, and I can remember it's like a war zone. Like, like there's no sun, it's dark, it feels like it's the middle of the night, but it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. And, and ash is hanging in the air. Um, and, and it just hangs. It doesn't like move necessarily because there's not much wind. It just hangs there. And this is, this is crazy. The ash that is hanging in the air is on fire. I'm not making this up. The ash as big as my fist will hang in the air and it's got flames coming off it. And this is one of the reasons why fire can move so fast because ash will blow up and it'll go 50, 100 yards away and start another fire and the fire can move this way. Terrifying situation. So we go from, okay, what do we need to pack up and get out? What are the important things to, we need to get out now? Like, where's the dog? Where's the children? Throw them in the car. We got to go. And so, emergency situation. So my wife, and she's not here, so I can talk about it. She, she instinctively runs to the closet, grabs a backpack, runs to the dresser, throws in clothes, grabs the children, puts them in the car, comes running back into the house, grabs important paperwork, 
like social security cards, uh, last will and testament, uh, house mortgage, marriage license, things like that. We have a file. She grabs that and then she says, I read an article about what you're supposed to grab. You're supposed to grab photo albums. So she grabs as many photo albums as she can carry. Okay, it's not digitalized photos, these are actual photos. Grabs the stuff, throws it in the car. And this is what I do. So I watch Jen run to the closet and grab a backpack. So I say, that's a good idea. So I grab a backpack and I go to, I think, not, I, can't, I, I don't know for sure, but I think it was the dirty clothes pile. And I grab a handful of clothes and I throw it in the, in the backpack. And then I think, I don't know why, I think I need a shovel. So I run, I'm not kidding you, I run to the garage and I grab a shovel. And I run to the car and I have a backpack of dirty clothes and a shovel. And I'm like, let's go. We get to our friend's house and, and we all calm down and we actually have a really good time at our friend's house because it's like a mandatory vacation. And Jen didn't quite pack all the clothes she thought, so we got to go clothes shopping and, and we did a laundry because I brought the dirty clothes. So um, never use the shovel, but it gives you a really good idea of what happens in two different brains, the same situation. I thought we were all gonna die, so for some reason I thought we were gonna bury people. I'm not sure what I was thinking about the shovel, but there was a shovel in the back of the car. There's two different ways to process a situation like that, and that's an extreme situa situation. But how does your brain work when things are not going the way that you want them to go? Do you logically play the steps out? Have you done research? Have you trained yourself to respond in a certain way? Or do you panic and grab a shovel? This morning, the story that we get to go through is a situation of extreme danger for David. And we get to see how his brain works in the time of an emergency. So we're going to turn there. This is 1 Samuel chapter 24. And I do this when I look at the Old Testament with you guys. I like to read the whole story. So we're going to read the whole chapter, and it really lays out nicely. So you can sit back, relax, let me read it to you, or you can follow along uh, as Dwayne puts the words on the screen. Okay, chapter 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, so he has this on and off again thing with the Philistines, he was told, so after he's uh, done pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 young, able men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. And we just hang on for a second. 3,000 young, able bodies men. That's translation for the best warriors that he has. They're young, they're experienced, and he's hand-selected 3,000 of them. Another thing to think about is this sort of thing happens a lot after the boys get back from a, from a battle, right? If the boys win the battle, they come back looking for trouble. It's like that scene, you know, you're watching a movie and the, the character gets into a bar fight and he knocks the first guy down and then he's like, who else wants some, right? He's like calling people out. This is what Saul's doing. He has just somewhat defeated the Philistines, not permanently, but he's got them on the run. And he comes back going, who else wants a piece? Huh? You guys want a piece? You guys want a piece? Who wants a piece? He's feeling strong, he's feeling victorious, and he's gonna clear house. And somebody whispers in his ear, you know that annoying guy, David, that's been kind of a thorn in your side since you started? He's, he's over here. We should, go, we should go get him. 
So of course, it doesn't take much to talk Saul into going and finding this annoying uh, David guy. So he goes, and if you're wondering where the crags of the wild goats are, no one knows. But I think the description of the place will give you an idea. It's a very desolate place. It's where the wild goats live, not the tame goats, the wild goats, okay? So he's in the crags of the wild goats. Verse 3, he, Saul, came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And yes, if you were wondering, they needed to relieve themselves back then, just like today. So he has to go relieve himself. Um, I love that I'm reading this story to you guys. David and his men were far back in the very same cave. The men said, David's men says, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give you your enemy in your, into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. <clears throat> then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. A very bizarre thing to do. Now listen to what happens in David's mind. This guy is in the cave that is trying to kill you, that has 3,000 experienced young warriors outside, ready to tear you to, to bits. And David creeps up, cuts off a, a corner of his robe, and thinks this. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken. Having cut off a corner of his robe, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay a hand on him. For he is the anointed of... With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. <clears throat> Interesting turn of events. Can you imagine his men going, what in the world? Does he just want us to die? Is that the deal here? Because we're about to get taken apart. Verse 8, then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay a hand on the Lord's, on, the, on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. He's not done. He keeps the rant going. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate, vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Now the rant's over. David is so conscious stricken that he, he literally goes out to Saul and tells him what he's done. And did you catch how Saul, or, or David calls Saul my father? 
the Lord's anointed. Some theologians think that's how highly he thought of Saul's position. He's also the son-in-law of Saul, so he might be referring to him as father-in-law. Can you imagine a father-in-law feud going this hard? Ah, verse 16, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You get this hint of the, of the trauma that's in Saul's heart, the way he thinks. 17, you are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered you into my ha- or delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. In the last verse, so David gave his oath to Saul. And then Saul returned home, but David wasn't born yesterday. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. And that's the end of the story. Such a fascinating story. Saul last week was put in a pressure situation. The Philistines are mustering their men. They're ready to take Saul. His men are fleeing and he panics and he tries to use God as a means to an end. And this week, David is in fear of his life and not just his life, his men's life. He has about 400 men with him. He is in a dangerous situation and he's a mighty warrior yet he knows the odds. They think Saul probably outnumbered him five to one. They knew. The writing was on the wall. If If they fight these guys, it's over. David responds in such an interesting way. You see, he keeps the Lord sacred in his mind. David, being pursued from Saul, finds himself in a cave hiding and an opportunity presents itself. I don't think there's a person on the planet that wouldn't say that David is justified in protecting his own life, in defending himself against Saul, who's trying to kill him for no reason. Justified. You can end all your problems. Even David's men are translating the word of the Lord and they're saying, look it, this is the point. This is it. God has given him. There's no way we could take this guy on in the open field. A perfect opportunity. Do it, David. Take the matter in your own hands. Set us all free and you can reign tomorrow. I think maybe it was like a really long crawl for David to where Saul was because he had time to think. Do I really want to do this? Do I really want to end all my problems right now? Do I want to take matters into my own hands? Do I want to set myself and my men free? But David says, no. God's anointed is too big of a deal for me to even protect myself against it. Now, before we get all hyper excited about David and how amazing he was. If you keep reading, 
in 1 Samuel. If you read chapter 25, you would read a story, the story of Nabal. Now, the story of Nabal is told from the perspective that Nabal is this horrible, wicked, dishonest man. But this is the Cliff Notes, the Josh version of the story of Nabal. David and his men um, are around this guy Nabal, at least around his people. And, and they didn't let anything bad happen to him during the harvest. So David says, you know what, uh, guys, go talk to Nabal and tell him, Hey, you know, we protected you, even though you didn't ask us to. We protected you. And since we protected you and you have all this wealth, why don't you, why don't you share a little bit with us? This is the equivalent of driving down to New York City and parking your nice BMW in a parking lot. And a guy comes out of the shadows and goes, hey, um, I think your car's in danger. I think you need to pay me to protect it. Right? Pay me to protect it. And if you say no and come back, you could have some slashed tires on your hands. Actually, it's worse than that. It's like you parked your car in New York City and you went into the office building and you came out and somebody goes, oh, by the way, there was a bunch of really bad guys here and they were gonna steal your car and I told them not to and if they did, I would beat them up and they left. So you should, uh, you should throw me a little kickback. What would your response be? Thank you, no, where are the police, right? It's a scam. It, it seems like a scam. David is requiring payment for something this guy didn't ask him to do, but he did it. So Nabal's response is this. Uh, no, I'm not going to give you what uh, you say you, you're owed. I didn't ask you to protect me. And by the way, there's a lot of people in the country right now that are saying they are not who they really are. So I don't even know who you are. That's all Nabal says. And you know what David's response was? Oh, let's keep uh, this sacred in this relationship. I need to make my uh, best response to Nabal. No. He says, 400 men, strap on your swords. We're going to go kill him right now. And so he wisens up and he leaves 100, I think, to watch their supplies. And the rest of the guys strap on, ready for battle, and they march on Nabal. And Nabal's wife uh, sees this calamity unfolding and she sends gifts to them and she meets them out in the field and she apologizes and says, oh man, Nabal doesn't know who you are and, and he's this evil guy and I'm so sorry. Would you take the, these gifts? And it, and it appeases them. That's who David is. David is the guy to take revenge. Guy, David is the guy to strap on his sword and, and not to think twice. This affirms the point. David is a warrior, and he's really good at it. But in this situation with Saul, he pauses, and he waits, and he thinks, God, it seems like Saul's being given into my hands, but what's the bigger story here? Why in the world would a guy whose instinct is to strap on his sword pause and consider and ponder in this situation? David kept God sacred in his life, no matter what happened. Saul pursued him like a dog. David kept his view of God, and he kept that view sacred. Even to the point when it looked like, looked like God was allowing David to end his own misery, David remembered that the God's anointed is a sacred thing, more sacred than even David's life. And he trusted God's will. He trusted God's will. And he said, if God didn't want him to be alive, then he wouldn't have anointed him. It's not up to me. 
to remove him. This is the main idea this morning. It's more of a question. Are we using God to preserve what is sacred to us? Or are we using what we have to keep God sacred? I'll say that again. Are we using God to preserve what is sacred to us? Or are we using what we have to keep God sacred? It's an interesting question. And I think it's one that you you could probably write down and think about a lot. Because there's a lot of decisions that I make. And there's a lot of prayers that I pray. Lord, would you do this thing? This isn't going the way I want. Would Would you help me there? Would you do this? Would you do that? And that's okay. God asks us to ask him. But man, what would my prayer life be like if I kept God always sacred in my life? To the point that everything I have keeps him sacred. My my perspective of him might be a little different. My response to him might be a little different. So are we using God like a magic genie lamp? Are Are we hoping that every now and then he'll do that thing that we want? If we just appease him, if we go to church, if we pray a lot, if we if we take care of all these things, will he maybe do what I want? And maybe he doesn't do it all the time, but it's like that one time that I really want him to do the thing. Are we so focused on the now that God becomes a means to an end? It's a hard question to ask. David was able to keep God sacred in his life. That doesn't mean that he didn't want, have wants and dreams, and it doesn't mean that he didn't accomplish much with his life. He was Israel's best king, they'll tell you that. They still sing songs about King David. It's not that. And it's not about sin. Because Saul was a sinner. And he messed up and he took things in his own hands. He, he actually went to the witch of Endor. We talked about this last week. To con- consult with the dead. David also was a sinner. And he, and he set standards. David was kind of the king of sinners. Just read the story of David and Bathsheba, and how many things he had to do in order to try to set that situation right. David was just as much a sinner as Saul. It wasn't about David's life being put together and everything working the way that it should and and being in control of every situation. In fact, you could argue David's life was even more out of control than Saul's was. The story of Absalom and Tamar is a horrific story of David's children doing horrific things to each other because David did not teach them the ways of the Lord. This was not about sin, and this is not about being in control. And even in an emergency situation, we might assume that it's about keeping a level head, but it's about relying on your training. It's about relying on the things that you believe now, and when things get difficult, you respond that way. David was able to keep God sacred. When things got difficult for David, he kept God sacred in his heart. When things didn't make sense, he kept God sacred. When he thought he was going to die, he kept God sacred. Over and over and over. And you might wonder, well, how in the world was David able to do that? He wasn't like some um, genius guy who never sinned. We just talked about that. He wasn't like he was in control of every aspect of his life. 
It wasn't that at all. In fact, David was out of control. How was David able to do that? And it would be really easy at this point to give you a list of things to do to make you feel like you're in control. Well, if you read your Bible and if you pray and if you um, go to church every Sunday and if you never tell a lie and if you're always honest and, and even though your wife asks you if that dress looks nice, you just you honestly answer and then let the chips fall where they may not. No, don't do that. What does it look like? How was David able to do this? It wasn't about control. And I think there's even a, a little bit of a myth going around in Christian culture right now that you can somehow manipulate your relationship with God so he's closer to you. We use that word a lot. Oh, I want to draw close to God. Even scripture uses the word, but I think we misunderstand it. Draw close to God. Well, here's the truth. Because of our sin, we are incapable of drawing close to God. So God drew close to us. And he did that with Jesus and his death and his blood and his resurrection. And now we're allowed to wrap Jesus' righteousness around us like a robe. And I'm here to tell you, you are closer right now to God than you ever have been if you claimed him Lord of your life and if you trusted in him. That's what he did for you. So this isn't about manipulating or controlling or having the right disciplines or doing enough homework, having the right knowledge. It's not about that. David was able to keep God sacred in his life is because David was in love with him. Every day of David's life, I'm convinced that he fell deeper and deeper in love with God. So the question is not, how can you manipulate this relationship so that you can keep it sacred? The question is, is what makes you fall in love with God? God loves you more. God loves you the most amount right now. He's not going to love you any more. He's not going to love you any less. He already died for you. That's how much he loves you. So what do we do? The better question is, what do we do to fall in love with God? And I think it's actually when you put it from that perspective, in that context, it's pretty simple. Spend time with him. You spend time with him. And it happens. The more time you spend with him, the more you understand him, the more, the more that you see yourself the way he sees you. And that's where that love deepens. And that's where you could start cultivating this instinct of trust. I don't know how this situation is going to turn out, but I trust him. Saul's going to kill me, and I know I have, the, I have the ability to take him out right now, and my problems would be over. But I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. It's almost like admitting that you don't have the answers, admitting that you don't know how this is going to turn out. There's three things that I think can help us fall in love with God. These things don't make him happier with you. They don't make him love you more. We need to be the ones that love God more. The first one is to listen. If you're going to fall in love with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you need to listen to them. When they speak, you stop what you're doing and you put your phone down and you focus on them and you try to understand what they're telling you. We can listen to God. We can listen to him in consistent prayer. 
had many conversations with the deacon of prayer, Willie Frederick, in this church. And it always is around consistency and openness in prayer. So we do this. Wednesday mornings at 6.30, we show up right here, right here in the middle, in the front, and we sing a few songs and we listen. We don't have a list of things that we pray through, although that's very good. It's a different kind of prayer. We listen to God and we speak to God and we ask him to speak to us. And it's this time that we have where we're listening to him. Many people come. You can come if you want. It's open to whoever wants to be here. That's the first one. Listen to God in prayer. And it takes consistency. It takes a discipline of doing it. And, and the more you do it, the more you know him. And the more you know him, the more you fall in love with him. That's the first one. And the second one is this. To look Look to what God says about you. You won't believe the kind of things people tell me they think God thinks of them. You won't believe the kind of confessions. Oh, I know I'm this horrible person, and I, I know I haven't lived right, and I haven't been to church in months, and oh, I'm just, I'm a mess, and I just, God just must hate me. And I want to pull my hair out. But no, actually, if you just read this, these are love letters that God wrote to you because that's how much he cares about you. You have to listen and then you have to look to what God says about you. Look to his word. That's only the first step though. Look to his word. His word will guide you to the truth about your value, your worth, and what God has done for you. And then look, to, look carefully for him in your life. And this might be hard if you feel like your life's falling apart. Look to him in your life. What is he doing in your life? Every time I do this, I, I end up not having enough paper to write down all the things that God has done for me and is doing for me. It'll overwhelm you. The ways he provides, and maybe ways that you don't expect or the ways that you don't notice right away, but look to what God is doing and working in your life. It might be, it be your family, your friends, even your coworkers. Look to a church community that can affirm God's word. That's us. It's Grace Chapel. If you spend time with us, we, it'll rub off. God's word rubs off on each other. That's why we come here. That's why we do community events. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have all these things that go on in the fall. Because we want this idea of who God is to us to rub off on each other. And it builds this deep community. So we're listening to God. We're looking to what God says about us. And the last one is we love. We look for ways to love with his kind of love. David was a ferocious lover. He looked for ways to impact people around him for God's sake. He did it really imperfectly. He made a lot of mistakes. But he cared. And the oath that he swore to Saul, he protected his whole life. And he didn't just protect Saul's name. He brought Saul's grandson into his house and let him dine with him and protected him with his family. Look for ways to love. Maybe somebody that you work with that just desperately needs encouragement. Might be a family member, your spouse, extended family, maybe a neighbor who just seems, life just seems to be falling apart. They desperately need encouragement. Tell them who God says they are. They are precious in his sight. One of the best places 
I don't say this enough up here, one of the best places to listen, to look, and to love is right here at Grace Chapel. Maybe it might be a cultural thing, and we don't say it a lot in church, but if you don't come to church regularly, you won't get the benefit of these things. It takes consistency. It takes saturating your life with people that tell you who God is to you and who you are to God. It, It has to sink down. It takes time. And people come to church once every couple of months, and they're like, oh, man, life's so confusing and hard, and why don't you come here? We'll remind you of how to keep God sacred. And it's not because we got it figured out. It's because we just spend time in His Word together. We spend time praying together. We spend time worshiping together. So this is the, the quintessential pastor telling his church, the more time you spend with your fellow church members, the better it is going to be for your faith and the more in love you're going to fall into Jesus. To be around people that care about Jesus and care about you is a valuable thing. And I don't understand why people don't want to spend time here every day. (laughs) Because I don't know, honestly, I don't know how I would do life without you guys. You matter that way. So you need to be in church more. But let let me ask you this question. What would it look like if we all listened, looked, and loved more in our lives, what would your life look like if that happened? If we, if we turned up the dial by 10, what would your life look like? It probably wouldn't have any less problems. Probably wouldn't even have any less sin in it. But you'd be training yourself to respond to God when things get really hard. What would it look like if you kept God sacred in your life, no matter what? Life would be, um, you, you, would, you would have a resilience, a grit that maybe you don't have now. But interestingly enough, we don't have to think too hard about what it would look like. We don't have to go crazy with our fantasies to, to dream about what it looked like. Because God gave us a passage It gives many passages, but one in particular that paints a crystal clear picture of what it looks like when a group of people do this. When we listen, look, and love deeper, and we trust God more, and we keep him sacred, this is what it looks like. Paul writes to the church um, in Colossae. This is Colossians 3.12. Paul says, Therefore, As God's chosen people, the people that he died for, the people that are beloved, the people that are worth so much. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. That's what happens when you keep God sacred in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity we have to rub shoulders with people that love you. Lord, to rub shoulders with people that know they are loved by you. It is is truly a blessing. 
And you've done that, Lord. This is your church. God, I ask that you would help us fall deeper in love with you, that we wouldn't think this is about some sort of control or, or sin management program that would draw you closer to us. God, but I simply ask that we fall more in love with you to the point that we can keep you sacred in our lives. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. In your name,